Are you tired of spinning your wheels with ineffective marketing strategies? Do you dream of finding a way to grow your business while also giving back to your community? Well, have you thought about charitable auctions? Maybe you've tried them in the past and you feel stuck because you're tired of donating to auctions that haven't gone that well. Either the winners never bothered to redeem their gift certificates or the ones who did were so price sensitive that you wished you'd never heard from them in the first place. Or maybe you've wanted to try auction marketing, but you don't know where to start and the thought of a bunch of trial and error makes you want to lay down and take a nap. Well, we've just launched our brand new course, Rework Your Marketing with Charitable Auctions. In this course, you'll gain access to a comprehensive course that has been meticulously crafted over 18 years of our own trial and error in our portrait studio in the trenches of charitable auctions. In this course, we dive deep into the world of charitable auction marketing and uncovering the secrets to our success with this. From setting clear goals to identifying the best charities for your business, we'll show you how to navigate this powerful marketing strategy with confidence. But that's not all. You're also going to receive a treasure trove of exclusive resources, including customizable templates, vendor recommendations, and tracking spreadsheets. Picture this. You donate a portrait session to a local charity auction. Not only does your donation attract the attention of your ideal clients, but it also helps support a cause that you're passionate about. And with the tools and insights provided by this course, you'll be able to turn those auction winners into lifelong clients. So whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, now is the time to rework your marketing strategy with charitable auctions. Visit our website today, dotherework.com forward slash auctions, and take the first step toward transforming your business and making a difference in your community. Welcome to The Rework with Allison Tyler-Jones, a podcast dedicated to inspiring portrait photographers to uniquely brand, profitably price, and confidently sell their best work. Allison has been doing just that for the last 15 years, and she's proven that it's possible to create unforgettable art and run a portrait business that supports your family and your dreams. All it takes is a little rework. Episodes will include interviews with experts from in and outside of the photo industry, mini workshops, and behind-the-scenes secrets that Allison uses in her portrait studio every single day. She will challenge your thinking and inspire your confidence to create a profitable, sustainable portrait business you love through continually refining and reworking your business. Let's do the rework. Hi, friends, and welcome to The Rework. Today's episode is sort of a part two to my earlier conversation, episode number 73 with Mary Fisk Taylor, if I was starting out now. But this conversation is with my friend Kimberly Wiley of Kimberly Wiley Photography. She had to close her studio in 2020 due to a really traumatic health problem. She's going to tell us a little bit about that. And then she's also going to talk about what she would do if she had to start over again in the portrait business right now in this economic climate and with everything that's going on. So I think you'll find this conversation very interesting. Somebody who's been in the business for 20 plus years has had to get out of it, what she would do if she was coming back in right now. Let's do it. Let's do it. 
You know, when you have really great friends in this world and you're too busy to actually have conversations on the phone. So now what this looks like is just inviting your BFF onto the podcast so that you can actually have a conversation. Hi. Hi. Kimberly Wiley is here today. I'm so happy that you're here and you look amazing, even though nobody's ever going to see this video. (laughs) Well, thank you. I have lots going on today. Yes. (laughs) We had to get dressed, put some makeup on. I love it. Well, I appreciate you being here. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about is when we last talked, you shared such great advice. And that was one of our most downloaded episodes. I wanted to update everybody on where Kimberly Wiley Photography is at. And then also just talk about what you would do if you were coming back into the industry right now. So give us a little bit of backstory on that. Okay. Meaning like where we're at, meaning that we're not actively working at this point. Yeah, just kind of what? So I've never really publicly talked about this much because it's kind of an ongoing saga still. Close friends have been very intimately involved in my nightmare of a journey. But in 2019, so backstory is I was a very big runner. I love to run. That's the way I decompress. That's the way I process thoughts. Um, All my best ideas either came when I was running, taking a shower or going to the bathroom. Like that's where (laughs) all brilliance comes from. (laughs) When you're not on your phone or a computer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So running was just such a great outlet for me. But over time, I like to run like five, six, seven miles five, six, and seven started really hurting. And I was really struggling physically. And on top of that, I had a very bad shoulder that was affecting my shooting and my job every year, especially during Christmas season. So running became my outlet. Swimming used to be my outlet before that. Long story short, I had double knee surgery in November of 2019. And unfortunately, that surgery left me, I was only supposed to be on crutches for like three to five days, five to seven days at the most. And we had people flying in for Christmas sessions all that next month and local people and just packed calendar. And my surgeon guaranteed that I'd be fine to do my job after a week. And I never got off crutches until my second surgery, which was February of 2020. There's all kinds of things that just didn't go right, to put it mildly. And so at this point, I have my seventh surgery scheduled in like a month. And then my eighth surgery scheduled in January. And it's a very long story, but the bottom line is I couldn't do my job anymore. And it was heartbreaking to have spent all my love and all my blood, sweat, and tears. And all of you who do this for a living know that it's so much more than a job. There's passion involved and not only the art, but the people you're working with and the relationships. Yeah. And my people, even at KWP that I worked with, like my best friend, Jessica, and everyone who worked there, their lives were affected by it. And so the writing was on the wall. We knew what the problem was. And when this problem happens, a lot of times people have upwards of like five, six, seven, eight, 10, 15 surgeries, sometimes trying to get it fixed. Mm. Writing was on the wall that this wasn't going to be like a really short journey. And so we decided in January that we're going to have to close because I still was on crutches and it was heartbreaking. We had to sell all of our cute little things we curated over time and our beautiful studio and all, all the things. And it was like, I was selling like part of my soul. It was just so, that sounds so dramatic when I say that, but it really felt that way. 
And the ironic part of it is that this was February of 2020. We closed the door for the last time, February 23rd, I think it was. And I went to Connecticut for my second surgery. And sweet Jessica, after my husband had left, flew out to stay with me. And we're watching the news and we're like, are we even going to get home? What is this whole thing that everyone, I mean, the coronavirus. Yeah, what is this COVID-19 thing? And anyway, we came home and two weeks later, the world shut down. And I'll never forget sitting on my back patio in this huge knee brace, just going, God works in the craziest ways. So that's kind of the story of why we closed very, very not the way we pictured that ending, kind of an abrupt stop. We had always pictured at a minimum, holding on to some of those clients that just love to do anything and everything you said. And so our next big thing was we were going to start doing shoots in Paris. That was Mm. our thing we were going to do in uh, 2020. So maybe someday we'll still make that happen. But that's where the KWP is. So that's kind of an update there. But my brain and my heart are still very involved and loves talking about it and would love to help anyone in any way I can. So, well, and you're a wealth of knowledge and one of the best business brains I know, and also one of the most kind and giving, loving people that I know in my life. So, I'm going to come on these podcasts just because you fill me up with <laughs> awesome compliments. Yeah, it's true. It's absolutely true. Yeah, it's absolutely true. So right back at you. (laughs) So, you know, you've had this nothing short of tragic health trauma. There's no other way to put it that you've been, you know, pushing this boulder up the hill again and again and again. It didn't allow you to to do what it is that you love for a living at this point anymore. But I'm going to wave a magic wand and say, you're now coming back into the industry in 2022. In January of 2023, you are going to have to open again. What would you do? Because I think that's an interesting thought exercise when there are many of our listeners that are like, well, you've been in business for X number of years. Of course, you have this, that, and the other. Would you do anything different? What would you do the same? Let's just discuss it. What do you think? Okay. I think that's kind of a fun little exercise, given that I have had time to pause and do other things and not be just inundated with all photography. 2022, I mean, 2023, you're going to be, I would be starting a business in a very different climate. I think all the things that are going on in the world with inflation and all the boring things that we're not going to get into, but that would affect things a little bit. I think the number one thing from what I learned going through the recession of 2008, 2009 is I remember very distinctly being terrified of that time period because typically, you know, that's when luxury purchases go away Mm -hmm. and people start holding on to their money tighter. I would think photography would be one of the things that they wouldn't do. And I think that through that time period, what I learned is that being in the higher end of photography, like having a product to sell that people could touch and feel and hold on to, that being in that level of the market, as well as being in the higher end of it, 
just really helped us stay afloat. It was the middle market that struggled a lot more. People who didn't really have a defined brand or didn't have specific products to really get people excited about. They're the ones that struggled a lot more through that time period. And I didn't know we were making the right moves at the time because it was actually super scary thinking that, okay, wait, we're expensive. People are going to not want us. Right. When in fact, I feel like it kind of was opposite of that is that the people who have discretionary income and it's a very low level amount because they're not paycheck to paycheck, but they're also not with a really large nest egg or even a medium-sized nest egg. They're the ones who are going to have to pull back more. Whereas some of our clients were very lucky and blessed and they had bigger nest eggs. And so they were able to ride that storm without such big peaks and valleys. And their spending patterns didn't change as dramatically, let's say, as someone who had maybe a smaller nest egg. And so I think I would want to make sure that I had very defined brand and a defined product line that was something for me to get excited about, but also for others to get excited about. And I think having those printed products and the things they could really hold on to, especially during this time, would be one of the number one things I would be looking to focus on. Okay, so a couple of things there that I want to just have you expand on. The idea of not even a nest egg, but expenditures as percentage of income. And so like, for example, when Caroline, my sister, first kind of started into the interior design world, and she would talk about some of the things that they were putting in these houses, like, you know, a chandelier that was $100,000 or whatever, you know, <laughs> which is like extreme. I, I like, that's not a normal thing. But in, in that world, it is normal, you know? And so I would be like, you could feed an entire village for years of kids in Africa for that, you know, and how can you possibly do that? And she's like, well, you're looking at a percentage of their expendable income. You going and buying a $20 or a $50 lamp at Target takes more of a higher percentage of your expendable income than that $100,000 chandelier does of theirs. And those people are also funding huge philanthropic efforts or whatever. So it's just get out of your middle class or blue collar world mindset, which is where I totally was. And look, take a bigger view. Yeah. For those of you that listen to that podcast, you referenced at the beginning of this podcast about jumping off the ledge. That was a huge part of that jump is to recognize, gosh, I can't be doing business based on my own budget. Mm -hmm. I will never succeed. And it's so hard to get out of your own head. Well, um, and your own fears too. Your own yes, fears about or, or like the I'm economy. Not more than that. I wouldn't pay more than that. So mm -hmm. why would someone else mm -hmm. pay more than that kind of feeling? But I knew that I had to stop looking at this as a personal journey, but as a business decision and not a personal reflection of what I'm worth or what my work is worth, but what is my time worth? What am I willing to give up instead of all of that? And it made it more cut and dry. It made it more of a business decision in the end. And when we did jump off that ledge, it was kind of jumping to the other side of the world saying, you know what? I might not be able to afford my own work, but I know that there are people out there that can and that value what I do. 
So that's the world I'm going to now live in from a work perspective. And we did. And it was one of the best decisions we ever did was to work. And we had to take time to really, if you think about really high-end companies, they don't have just a ton of product choices. It's a much more curated line of higher end offerings. And I always call it the cheesecloth. What words did we want our products to see through? And it was high end, classic and timeless, um, but not always necessarily traditional. We wanted work that could be in a very traditional home or a very contemporary home. Mm -hmm. And in order to play in that world, we had to pare down our products to fit those words, but also to feel high end and to have the whole experience feel high end to get those clients to want to come to us instead of other options. And because of that, we were able to weather the financial storm in a very different way had we not made that leap. And so I know if I were to start again, I would do whatever I had to do before I opened my doors to get my branding and my product line and the quality of my work at a level that I could comfortably be in the higher end market. So was there anything specific that you feel like that you did because you were, before you made that transition, did the transition from middle to higher end, did that just happen kind of organically or by raising prices and changing your offerings? Or was there a conscious decision one day, like we're going high end and you changed it the next? Like, what did that transition look like? So if you could pull out all the marketing materials that we've produced over our 21 year career or whatever it was and put them side by side, you would see a progression in marketing that answers your question right mm-hmm. there, which you guys could visually see when I first- From, from the Applebee's in. menu to the- <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when we first started, it was, let's see here, I did black and white. I still to this day, black and white is where my heart beats, but we got into that colorizing, tinting, just the roses part. That's how we started. The photographer I originally started under and worked for, that was her style. So our first marketing piece had that kind of feel on it. But as lovely as that was for that photographer, that really wasn't my personality. And so that didn't last long. And then the next one and the next one. And over time, what you would see is there was a ton of color. It was like, let me just make sure everybody knows every little thing I could possibly do for them all on one postcard. Mm-hmm. Um, How many pictures on a postcard? At that point, at least the one I'm picturing in my head had six, mm-hmm. you know, six little squares. Thumbnails. Yeah. You know, right. Making sure everyone knew I did maternity and newborns and toddlers between mm-hmm. this age and this age and the next stage and, and much, much more and the family. And, you know, yeah. And if you could see our last pieces, they had a ton of white space. Our logo morphed over time into something much more higher end looking, much more elegant. We had a mark that could be used without my name. And the marketing itself was extremely clean, very minimal fonts that were more high end and just a much cleaner, refined look. I got rid of all the too much stuff. It's like Jessica and I would sit there and look at everything. And it was just, I don't know, you could, it would be funny. That would be a funny visual to put together. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I remember when I came and visited you in your studio, I think it was 2016 and 
you were like, okay, so look in here. Cause it's, I think it's so helpful to have somebody that's not, doesn't work in your studio every day, come in. And you did the same thing for me when you came to my studio, but it's like, you'd say, okay, tell us what is too much needs stuff. To or go. Yeah. What needs to go, you know? And so anything I would say, well, you know, maybe that you're like, throw it out. <laughs> Right <laughs> yeah, You're like we're not keeping it. We're not calling that client to see if they want it. Like it's in the trash. Like get it out of here right now. You know. So even after then, like by then, you had already had a high end brand, and but continual refining, continual curating, yes. continual the rework. Like, That's what the rework is yeah. all about, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, and just that you're never through. No, you're never done never evolving. Does. You're never done evolving. Well, thank goodness, because otherwise it'd be so, so boring. I know. Yes. So true. Oh, I would never, I would have to come up with something new and different each year just so I would remain excited, you know. Exactly. You do it for that long, you gotta do something to keep the magic there for yourself yeah. that shows through everything. But yes, I would say one thing too that I know we were really good at is both Jessica and I, thank goodness, we have so many similar personality traits, but one that we shared that I think directly impacted our business is we were quick to, once we saw what we needed to do, there was no hesitation. It was right. like, do it. How, how do we get there yesterday? Executors. Um, yes. We, once we saw it, we were in it. We didn't have to hem haw around it. It's like a decision was clear. We're done. Let's do it. Throw it out. What next? Yeah. So hard thing for a lot of people to do because a lot of people will second guess and, oh gosh, should I really do that? What if this happens? All the fears and all the scary things. Right. So you're, you're talking about a process of reduction really is you, you go from like being all things to all people. And I think for sure, when we all start out, you don't really know what you're going to like to do. You just are so happy to be that somebody's paying you to do something with a camera and you're having fun. And then you realize, wait a minute, this is actually a lot of hard work and people have opinions about that work and they have opinions about how it turns out and all that. So they have opinions about anything that you charge money for. And then you start to reduce your product line, not just when we say product line, we mean the physical product, but also the number of types of genres that you're shooting. Mm -hmm. So you, you got it down to where you're doing because high-end newborn was really your main thing, right? No, I wouldn't say that, but I didn't feel the need to put everything we did on every advertisement. Mm -hmm. For sure. That would be the difference. So the number one thing in branding is consistency. And it took us a minute to find that because again, if you look back, our logo even changed over time. I would recommend making one big change and trying to stick with it as long as humanly possible. Because the more you change your brand, the more confusing you are to all your people. But again, once we knew we wanted to be more high-end we had to change our brand. So we did. We hired a professional to do it and we spent the money into the brand to make it phenomenal. We had letterpress cards and I mean, it was very high end. The paper we used, everything that you touched, saw, felt, smelt, experienced had to fit within that brand. And I think a lot of people don't realize how important that is to the luxury consumer when they're shopping. So it's not just changing the prices and getting rid of a few products. It's really making sure that that permeates through the entire experience. Right. And so if you've designed your own logo and you're not in a past life, we're not a graphic designer. That's probably a good reason to rebrand. Yeah. 
Yes, exactly. And that was me. I had done all of our logos. Um, Same. Yeah. And it just, you know, lacked the refinement looking at it. Like you can see I did it, you know, it worked. It was fine. Yeah. But really to play in that next level, we needed to treat it like a business and invest in ourselves. And so we did. We hired a very well-known company here in Dallas that helped us and they did a phenomenal job. We loved our brand and I never felt confused in it after that. It was very easy and clear to do. So we had a ad that ran in a high-end magazine and every month that the only thing that would change would be mainly the picture, maybe the one line of text up above Mm -hmm. it, you know, whether it was Mother's Day or Christmas time or whatever Mm -hmm. we were talking about in that moment. Like for instance, we would do a beautiful family picture in the mountains and then we would put the dates of where we were traveling, Aspen, and here's the dates or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was a very simple ad. And so over time, those readers would see that we did newborns and families and the things, but not all at one time. Right. Yeah. It's not that we only became a newborn photographer. We did, we still did all those six buckets. We just didn't advertise them all in one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I think when somebody wants to buy a large scale piece of art for their baby's nursery, they want the specialist right. to create that for them. You know, somebody that they can see. So when you're looking at ads, if you can picture that there's a grid or nine or 12 different pictures, the different photographs, nothing will have the impact as that single full bleed image, whether right. it's on a card or whether it's in a magazine or yeah on a screen. And, I mean, we didn't even do full bleed. That, that to me was not high end. I wanted the white space around it yeah. to create that more refined feeling. Like um, a gallery else, catalog or something. Yes. I mean, but yeah. it goes to even... So back when we first started, we used to do something called a personalized series print, I think is what we called it, PSP. And think Pottery Barn, 1980s, 1990s. 2000 with like the frame with I don't know how many holes for however many pictures you wanted in that right. frame like a nine That's kind of like what we were trying to do is to create that opportunity for clients but without the mat mm-hmm. and it is the worst thing because it just takes all those beautiful images and smushes them all into this one thing. And it was horrible. Well, that's the version of the ad. Yeah. Would you rather have one drop dead gorgeous drooling image that you could just drool over rather than six all smushed together? Yeah. So that's what we did with the ad as well. Yeah, because it stops them in their tracks. That had that look to them. We got rid of all the products that had that look to them. We got rid of our advertising that looked like it. Yeah. We just started focusing on large scale art. Yeah. I love that. Well, and that's it stops them in their tracks when they flip past that too. Yes. But I feel like that's something that almost every photographer, portrait photographer in particular, has to transcend if they want to go to the high end is this idea of a lot of little multiple images in a single frame, right? A lot of like tiny little five by seven, eight by 10, like just this idea of a lot. I just want a lot, but the idea of saying, okay, we're going to commit to a single large image. And I think how many times have you heard photographers interviewed where they're saying, once I was standing in the dark room and I saw that image come up in the tray my life changed. Like then I just, you know, and then I think the same thing can be said is the first time you have a 40 by 60 delivered to your studio of one of your pieces. And you're just like, Oh my gosh, I had no idea 
that it could be this good. I literally have chills right now. And I'm like sitting in my kitchen, just thinking about it. Like, yeah, you can see even here on my Zoom call, those two of the kids. Like to this day, people walk into our house and just freak out over, you know, the photography in here because it's not a lot of little. It's very, very specific images. Intentional. Yeah, exactly. Intentional size to the space. And it just, it's so much better. We don't have, I don't have five by sevens anywhere around here. It's not true. I do. But most of them are like us eating ice cream or, you know. Those are your snapshots. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Those are your snapshots. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I know when I, when I made the transition from when I sold my scrapbooking store and then came into photography, some of those customers that were scrapbookers followed me and wanted me to photograph their family. And then they're like, well, we want, we need all the little ones for scrapbooking. And I'm like, no, no, these are not pictures for scrapbooking. These are not images for scrapbooking. This is to go to hold a wall and be like, whoa, this is your family, you know? And so I do feel like that is part of that same transition is rather than doing every single combination with every single session, and then they clients see them all, they want them all. It's like being intentional about how we're shooting, being intentional about what we're providing. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm thinking like, I'm sure you have a ton of listeners listening to this going, what are they talking about? How on earth am I ever going to get there? Like I'm a shoot and burn or I have products, but I mean, my clients are going to give an uproar if I don't offer five by sevens. Like I can hear some of the mental stuff going on and some (laughs) of the people probably listening to this right now. And I think that all that is very normal to feel because I felt it. I'm sure you felt it when you made this Mm -hmm. change. And you asked a question earlier that I don't know if I actually addressed, but it kind of will come back to answer these thoughts going through the head is, did I do this overnight? Was it like real dramatic or was it kind of organic over time? And I would say for us, it was a little bit of both. I think that over time I was trending, Jessica was trending in our sales room, like to be more intentional. We knew we kept finding the same roadblocks with every client, not depending on their budget. And the problem was that with that many different products and that many choices, there's a indecision that happens. Analysis, paralysis, comment. And Mm -hmm. I think that over time we were starting to simplify out of need. And so that part I would say was organic, but then the true decision, the jumping off the ledge moment that podcast we did, that was very intentional. You're so right. there was a little bit of leading us to the river and then jumping in. So to the people who have all those thoughts running through their head, the things I would say is it's not that we don't offer five by sevens or eight by tens anymore. We just don't make them a prominent part of our studio or even the sales process or even our language. That's not in our language. Those are very much obviously gifts for family. Maybe if you want one for your bedside table, that sort of thing. But that's not where the focus was. The focus was always on large scale art. The next thing I can hear is like, well, what about all my clients? If I'm going to lose all my clients. Yes, you will lose some of your clients. That's unfortunately part of the goal. Some of my most favorite clients are clients that we lost, but we didn't lose them forever. What they did was they saved their money for that one big, beautiful piece because they fell in love with that concept and that idea. And we didn't see them every year. Right. Um, every three years. Mm-hmm. 
And that was a-okay. They were still part of our lives. They understood what we were doing. They appreciated the value in it. And they saw it. They saw the vision and they wanted it and they paid for it. And that was probably the biggest compliment I think we received in all of our business was the clients that we thought we were going to lose and we didn't lose. They made it work and because they still loved what we did even more to save for it. And, you know, I think it's so scary to lose clients, especially when we're talking about possibly heading into a recession right now, like, oh my gosh, that's terrifying. But dream this way. Think about your life being more simple. Everything you do in your business right now, simplified. Your shoots are more focused, which means your editing is more focused and your sales process becomes more refined and focused and everything has a purpose behind it. So you're not just wasting all this energy trying to swim uphill Mm -hmm. and the clients that you're working with know who you are because you have such a defined brand and such a defined product line. And those things lead to your life becoming easier, more minimalist, simplified. You're going to have more time with your family. Like it just really brought everything home. We, we just weren't flailing like we were before. Mm-hmm. And so to the people who think, oh, I can't do this. You can, you absolutely can. And you know, you, it's a little bit of that field of dreams thing, you know, build it, they will come. If you build a brand with beautiful imagery, you will find the right clients. It happens because they'll see it and they'll want it. Well, and something that you just said made me think that we've heard a million times. How how many times have we heard about branding and defined brand and, and recognizable and clear and consistent and all of those things. But I still find that sometimes that feels like an elusive, hard to pin down concept. And just as you were talking, it made me think about how I feel like that my brand became more defined once I defined it, once I defined it. Like, so, and so part of that is when you hire, you know, a design professional to design your logo or your brand, that is one step because then you kind of see how other people see you and see your work. And so you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then you're looking at the work and you're deciding like, okay, actually I hate newborns. I mean, I don't hate newborns, but I hate photographing newborns. I love <laughs> toddlers. I love kids. I love families, you know? So you're looking at thinking about the things that you really don't have your heart, that you're never going to give them that it's just due by photographing that weddings, whatever. And then l- really leaning into the things that you do love and not just the product category or the genre, but like your unique vision, because you had such a unique vision of the newborn. You didn't do a typical newborn in a bucket. Like you did newborn on a Harley or, you know, I whatever, did. like, yeah, I <laughs> sure did. You know, so you did some really cool things. You did so- one on a Ferrari one time. Oh, I love that. It yeah. was the shoot took longer than anticipated because we had to wait for the car to cool down. Didn't think about that. They drove the car to the studio, obviously. Mm. And then we had to wait for it to cool down. We actually went to park. But one thing I think is interesting to the listeners there is that you, ATJ, your brand, your experience, you got even more narrow, more defined and refined than I ever did in terms of you only do studio sessions and you don't do newborns. You, you know, you have a very specific category of what you do where I did newborns, toddlers, families, we did inside, we did outside. We had a much more broad sense of like we had 
10 locations we loved and worked mm-hmm. in. And so you can be both of those versions and still be refined. I think that's important mm-hmm. for people to understand. It's not like you have to say, oh, I'm only going to be a newborn photographer now. You can, you can become the world's best newborn photographer and really hone in on that. That's great. But you don't have to do that to still be high end and refined in what right. you do. I think it's just a point of view because when I think of your work and your brand, it is timeless. It's classic, but it's also incredibly warm and colorful. And, uh, but even your black and white warm, I just felt like there's always such a warmth in what you like. The love is definitely there and beautiful. So it's, I think digging into what makes you, you, and sometimes that requires you to go outside of yourself and have colleagues look at your work and kind of give you those words that can help you further refine that. And then as you're trying to evolve your brand, you know, because we all want to stay relevant, we all want to stay being creative and moving forward. You know, how are we evolving the brand? So you might have a brand, but maybe it's stale, maybe it's time to refine that and move that forward. So yeah, I, I would say that with the refinement part, it's interesting because Jessica gets so bored sometimes. She's like, Kim, let's do something different because mm-hmm. she's in the sales room all day long working with you know our imagery. And I'm like, okay, I love that you're bored because that means we're just hitting our stride. Yep. Because that is the perfect time to know that you're doing exactly what you should be doing, which is being consistent. And it's so hard. So we would add in maybe a new, new something, but we never would just flip the switch and do something completely different. We had to still stay within the brand. And I think that's why I picked up painting, to be honest, because when you're really successful in something like photography and you've got a really good brand and all that, there is some limitations to what you're doing. You know, you just can't, I would never go put a bed in a field. That just wasn't my style. Right. That would have just been out of left field. Not that I couldn't, I just wouldn't advertise it or whatever, but it does confuse people. So when I started painting, I was able to really like do whatever the heck I wanted. I look at a blank canvas and it could be colorful. It could be, you know, and that's whatever. your, oh, that, so that's that was, kind of like your personal development. Right. That's my kept... own personal creative outlet while I did photography. Cause yeah, sometimes you will find that you'll get bored, but that's okay. You got to figure out ways to make it exciting. Like we talked about. Yeah. Cause there are so many things to having a defined brand that it's consistency. So it well, can and, be boring to a, a, to a creative person. Well, I think that's, I had so many friends, colleagues ask me, you know, when I decided to quit shooting location and only go studio, just like, you're going to get bored. Like, aren't you bored? How are you going to get people aren't going to come back again and again to for that. But I just found like the, the core reason why I was doing what I was doing and why I wanted to do the work the way that I did is that I didn't care about the environment. I really just cared about the people, their personalities. And yeah. that was something that was always changing in my mind. Right. You know? And so there was always a concept to be had. There's always something going on this year with this family that right. we want to hit the note yep. of for those kids or whatever. And so, and it was like an exercise in by reducing that there's no environment, something really great has to be happening between yep. the photographer and you that person. Make that magic happen. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, it's like setting a bar, you know, so, and everybody has their own version of that. And so I think so often we, because we're just trying to make a living, we're trying to sell what we're creating. If we could take a minute and have that creative time, not just to learn a new lighting setup or buy a new chair, which all the things we love, new lens, whatever, but 
think about like, why am I capturing these people the way that I am? And what do I really love about what I do? What do I not love? Maybe there's something that you don't love anymore that you need to reduce or take away. And what I've thought too, is that if I don't believe in what I'm doing, this is the most obvious thing in the world. How can I possibly convince my clients that they should do it? You know, if I don't believe that large scale art or finished product or larger images instead of a lot of little is the way to go. There's no way that my clients are going to buy that because I don't believe it. Yeah, exactly. Well, like lightning round kind of thoughts is like, if I were to start my business from scratch right now, I would definitely, number one, want to be high end. Two, I would get a professional to help me with my branding. Three, I would make sure I stayed within my brand. Four, I would make sure I did in-person sales. I think that's huge. I would make sure five, my pricing was consistent with my costs. That's a mistake I made for a long time trying to price to the market, not realizing that photographers aren't notoriously known for being high financial minded people. Right. (laughs) So doing my own math, making sure I have that. (laughs) That do your own math. This is the title of this podcast. Do your own math. Oh, that'll get a whole lot of viewers. (laughs) No, no, we just kidding. But okay, that is huge. So another way of defining your brand too is don't follow the crowd. Right. Don't just try to be a better version of somebody else. No, and I did. That's how I started. I came from finance, so I thought I knew nothing, but I did. I know me. I know me better than anybody. Yeah, I can only offer what I can offer uniquely from my brain if I let that happen. And once I did, that's when everything completely changed. When I started to feel like a true photographer and I owned it, that's when I got the confidence to start making some of these decisions that were hard to make. Because how did you own it? Like, what do you define that? Once you just owned it, like, um, what does that mean? I think for a long time, because I came from a financial background and I didn't feel like I was a valid creative, that I would hide behind the marketing. I could make anything look good in a marketing, but the actual process was a little bit of a crap show behind the scenes. And so when I started owning those a real photographers, when I, one, started investing to learn the things I was making mistakes in, like, why does this keep happening? So let's see, let's hire a lighting specialist. I probably worked with 10 lighting specialists before I really could control and understand light the way I wanted it. I would study movies. I would study other people's work, not to copy them, but to understand lighting patterns. That was probably my biggest technical challenge. And then my biggest compliment is later in my careers, people would say, how do you do your lighting? I want to learn your lighting. And I was like, oh, that's like really special that you just said that. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, how hard you worked. Yeah. So yeah. like, instead of just continually hiding the way I owned it was I said, all right, cool. What do I suck at? And how do I fix that? Like, what, what can I do to get better at that? Why am I not making the money I want to be making, even though I am running around like a chicken with my head cut off? Okay. I can do this one on my own. I don't need to hire anyone. Let's actually put my degree to work and look at the finances. Where am I going wrong? And I'll never forget Julia Woods. And we did that SMS um, yeah. We were client at one point, then we were mentors eventually. But Studio we were, management services through yeah. PPA back in the PPA. day when they used to do that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And Julia Woods was our mentor and she was pacing outside of her own studio. And she's like, okay, wait, do you guys understand how many five by sevens and eight by tens you sell and four by sixes, which just makes me cringe at the time. If we raise your prices on those this much, this is how much extra money you're going to make without doing anything in your business. And it was like, I'm smart enough. I should have been able to figure that out on my own, but I wasn't thinking that way. I didn't have that hat on. So after that day, I was like, oh, duh, let's put that hat back on and let's look at everything. Get that spreadsheet out. Line item and go through it with that brain. Like where else can we change? And I think when you realize that the stuff you sell the most, the middle of your product line, not the low end stuff and not the super, super expensive stuff, but that middle stuff, you have to price that for maximum profit because it's what you're selling all day, every day. And if you can, you'll see your bottom line just grow without having to shoot more, without having to do a whole lot differently. But that was how I owned it, I would say, is just recognizing what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? How do we exploit the strengths and how do we get stronger in those areas of weakness to be better at every part? And then also genuinely recognizing I can't do all of it. There's a point in your business where maybe you're a solo person right now, and that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're growing your business and you're really wanting to put more volume to it or more specialty to it, sometimes that's when you realize, okay, wait, I can't do this all on my own. Right. For yeah, the last time, I used to have so many things. Oh, no one can do that but me because yeah. it's I. BS. Absolute. I call BS because by the end of my business, I shot and I did final review. And then I did our finance and marketing. That's all I did. I used to do all the steps in between. No one else can go through the images and pick them. No one else can edit them. No one else can do the product part. Wrong, 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 wrong. wrong, yeah. wrong. Yeah. yeah. And it's like getting out of your own ego is, is part of all that. Yeah, for sure. Well, those are so many good things. And I love your brain as always. Yes, I know. Yeah. I love your brain more. <laughs> I love our brains together. I love our brains together. Our brains together are unstoppable. I love it. Yeah. Well, I I don't love my brain. I just love business. Like I love photography. It's such a fun way to, I don't know. It's just such a gift. And that's the last thing to end on real fast is that even though we're headed into possibly a scary time, that doesn't mean these families, this is what I had to learn. That doesn't mean these families are going to not want to remember their kids at that age. It has nothing to do with it. And that's the thing I was missing when I was so scared. And even throughout the pandemic, like talking to you and a lot of my other photography friends, the pandemic made people in a lot of ways want those images even more. They started Mm -hmm. recognizing how important slowing down in life was. So don't be too scared because kids are still being born and life is still moving. They're still growing up and losing teeth and growing and people want to capture that. Moments are still happening. So true. Well, you're the best. I appreciate you taking the time today and I hope you have a wonderful day. Oh, thank you. And same to all you people listening. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's good. It's just good to hear from somebody who's been there and done it. And I just hope your knees get better and that your surgery is a success. I know. I hope so too. I have high hopes for these next things. The one in November is very small. It's just getting, I have four screws in my legs that are kind of coming out on their own and they can't get any images because the artifacts from the metals. So we're taking them out so we can get an ECT and then surgery, the big surgeries in January. So 
Well, it'll be awesome. I know it. Praying for you. (laughs) All right. Love you so much. Love you too. All right. Thank you. Bye. I really appreciate Kimberly's brain, her perspective, her just groundedness in knowing who she is, that financial background that is so grounded her business. But it's interesting how when she was starting out, she lost sight of the fact that she was creative and then even lost sight of the fact that she knew how to run a business. And sometimes we require mentors to help us to see things that are already there. So I thought that was so interesting how she brought that back around. The episode that we referenced during the podcast, her earlier episode is number 31, Stepping Off the Ledge. And that's where we talked about the big, huge change she made in her business from a higher volume to literally taking half of her studio space, letting go some of her employees and going to a more sane and sustainable business model. So I think if you haven't listened to that already, you're going to find some really good value there. But the takeaways from this episode is how big a role branding plays in how you're seen in the industry, how you're seen in your community. But that really all starts with how you see yourself, how you see your work, how you see your clients, literally how you see each session and how you want to portray that client for them, how you show them to themselves in a consistent way. So I hope you found some value here in what Kimberly had to say. I know that I did. It's made me rethink a couple of things just during that conversation. If you have a minute and can go to our Instagram at do.the.rework and send us a DM and let us know what you liked about this episode, if there's something that we could have done better and any topics that you would like us to cover, we'd love it. Thanks for being here. In the United States, next week is Thanksgiving. So we are going to be taking a break from the podcast and spending the day with our families. And I hope that you will too. So I hope you have a great holiday and we'll see you on December 1st. You can find more great resources from Allison at dotherework.com and on Instagram at do.the.rework.com.